I grew up in the north woods of Wisconsin, and so the outdoors was a really big part of my life. And my dad was an avid outdoorsman, and so he took my sister and I fishing and hunting, and so I've hunted lots of things, bear, deer, grouse, rabbit. Um, but the thing that I liked hunting the most um, was turkeys. I found them the most enjoyable. Um, and turkeys, you, you hunt them during um, the spring, and so we usually go down to southern Wisconsin in April, and the thing with um, turkeys is they gobble. Everyone probably knows turkeys gobble, but they gobble in the spring because they're trying to attract, the male turkeys are gobbling because they're trying to attract um, hen turkeys, female turkeys, to them, and then they, you know, strut around, they puff up, you know, they put their tails out to try and impress um, uh, the females and also to scare away other male turkeys. And a fun fact that you'll probably don't need to know any in any circumstance in life, but mature male turkeys are called toms and adolescent male turkeys are called jakes. I don't know how they got named after Tom and Jake, but there you go. That's, a, that's free for today. You don't have to pay for that. Um, but when turkeys are gobbling to attract hens and other female turkeys, that is broadcasting their location to them, but it's also broadcasting their location to us. And so we would listen for them, and I always found it enjoyable to try and like sneak up on them because they have really good eyesight and really good hearing. And so that was a fun thing for me. But at night, turkeys find, if you've noticed trees, most trees have branches that are kind of more vertical looking, which wouldn't be very great to like sit on and and sleep, um, but turkeys look for trees that have like horizontal branches so they can just sit on them and not have to work to like stay on and be falling down the whole time. And so we would like find places where there'd be these rows of, you know, like a grove of trees with a lot of horizontal branches and we kind of think, okay, the turkeys are probably going to sleep here. You'd watch them go off and they're going to sleep at night and it's called roosting. They go fly up in the tree and sleep there. And so we would find out where they're uh, going to be sleeping and then we get up before they wake up, like 5 a.m., and we'd go out and sneak out to wherever they're sleeping. We wouldn't shoot them out of the tree, but we'd want to be there, like, waiting for them. And then we'd, we'd have turkey calls to tell them, like, hey, I'm a female turkey. So we'd, the hope was that they would fly down from their tree and come over to us. And then you, you know how that ends. But um, <laughs> anyway, but I... You missed the first shot. <laughs> we'd, that would be a warning shot. But, um, but sometimes, but we always get up and there would be... We wouldn't be able to see anything. Maybe you'd be able to see some stuff in like the dim of the moon. Um, but I always liked the time when we'd be sitting there. Usually I'd be like dying and falling asleep um, because we got up so early. But I always really liked that everything would be so quiet. Everything would be dark. And then the sun, as soon as you like start seeing it peek over and you're starting to be able to see things. And there's like that yellow orange glow in the, in, the, in the woods. Then all of a sudden one bird would wake up and start singing. Another bird would wake up and start singing. And then suddenly, you know, it's a choir eventually. And it was really cool to like be there and watch the world wake up. And sometimes as we'd sit there, I'd be like trying to figure out what things are. Like, oh, I think that's, you know, this, you know, shape of a tree. Or what is that thing? You know, you can't really see things very well in the dark. But as the sun came up, um, it would reveal what we, I was seeing, and I'd be able to see it more fully, like, okay, that's what that is, and more clearly, like, okay, now I'm seeing all the features there, and as the world woke up, there was all this beauty of creation around us that we couldn't see when we got in, but as the sun came up, we were able to see all this as it shed light on it. And today, um, we're beginning a four-week series for the month of April. Uh, we just got done celebrating Easter with Jesus' death, um, and then resurrection from the dead. And his resurrection proves that Jesus was telling the truth about what his death would do, that it would open a new relation to, uh, for us um, with God. And we can now be forgiven of our sins and know God in a personal relationship. But what exactly does that mean? 
how do we know God in a personal relationship? Like he, I can't, it's not like he's here for me to just see face to face and talk to. So how do we know God in a personal way? And so we're going to spend four weeks um, kind of looking at passages that talk about Jesus' resurrection and look with this theme of how do we know God? And so the series we're doing is Jesus is alive. Well, now what? You know, what's the, what's the big deal? He's alive and what does that mean for, for us? And this week as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, this is a prayer for knowing God better. And prayer is simply put, talking to God. And this passage is going to teach us what to ask God in order to know Him better. In those early morning hours turkey hunting, uh, beauty was all around me, but I couldn't see it until the sun came up. And with God, the beauty of who He is um, has been available, but sometimes we can feel like we're sitting in the dark and we need the sun to come up so that we can see Him. And the big question this passage answers is, how can you know God better? How can you know God better? That's what Ephesians chapter 1 answers. How can you know God better? In the book of Ephesians, um, much like most of the New Testament, is a a letter um, that Paul, an early follower of Jesus, wrote to a church in the city of Ephesus, which is around modern-day Turkey. And he's writing about 30 years after Jesus' death. Paul actually helped start this church, so he's uh, a church planter. Um, And then he writes this letter to them to encourage them, to instruct them, to give them some things they need to know. And in the opening passage of this letter, um, he just explodes with like this big run-on sentence, 12 verses, just praising God for the amazing blessings that he's given to Paul and these believers in Ephesus. And then he, he says that these blessings, they were planned and sent by God the Father. They're packaged in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the one who delivers them. And so that's what he says in those opening verses. Then following this, he prays for the believers in Ephesus. And prayer, as I said, simply put, is talking to God. And verse 15 tells us why he prays. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is thankful and he's motivated to pray. Uh, because it's evident that God has worked in the lives of these believers. He can see it. There's, he sees their faith, and he sees the, their love. And that may, shows evidence that God has really worked in their life. His grace has come into their life. And if your you know, faith is really daily dependence on Jesus, and so if today you're daily trying to live with continually more daily you know, dependence on Jesus, and you're having love for other people, that's good evidence that God has worked in your life. And he's continuing to work in your life. So that could be an encouragement to each of us today. Because um, sometimes we wonder, like, man, is God doing anything in my life? Is he, you know, I just kind of feel stuck. But if you're like, man, I'm more and more growing my dependence on Jesus. I'm more and more learning to love others. That's a good evidence that God's working in your life. Well, how does he pray for them? He starts off his prayer. Verse 17 says that he, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So that's the start of his prayer. And notice how Paul prays. The Bible tells us that there's only one God, but this one God exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is one God who exists as three persons. We don't worship three gods. That's called polytheism. We worship one god, monotheism, and but he's three persons. In Christianity, we call this the Trinity because God is a, a tri 
unity, three divine persons united as one God, a triunity, a trinity. And Paul directs his prayer to the glorious Father. This is how he prays. He directs his prayer to the glorious Father, and he asks the Father to give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of God the Father. So he's saying, Father, would you use the Spirit to reveal knowledge about you to these believers? And we learned during our Easter series that because of Jesus, the curtain that separated us from God, from knowing God, from being in his presence, was been torn in two. And now when we believe in Jesus, God's personal presence, that curtain got torn in two, now God's presence can leave and it can come and dwell inside of us. So anytime uh, when somebody trusts in Jesus, um, Paul said earlier, the Spirit comes and, and seals them, marks them as God's own. The Spirit indwells us. He dwells inside of us. And Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And wisdom can only come through revelation because wisdom is all about living rightly in God's world. And you can only live rightly in God's world if you know the God who created it. That's the, how would you do something right unless you were, had knowledge of the one who created the thing and how they made it to work. And the only way you can know someone is if they reveal themselves to you. Because we could all sit down and I could ask you a ton of questions about your life and where you grew up and what you like and your favorite color, what your favorite food is. And if you just sat there silent, like, I haven't gained anything. Like, you, haven't, you have to choose to reveal yourself to me. And the Spirit is the one who reveals the Father to us so we can know him on a deeply personal level. Because God isn't just silent. He has spoken. He's spoken through these scriptures. The Spirit breathed out the Bible through human authors. And then he speaks to us today. The Spirit's given to us so that we can understand, um, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, well, you've been uh, freely given by God. And the Spirit, um, so he works through the Bible. Um, and Paul says the Spirit can reveal to us. He has this phrase. He says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. The Spirit illumines or shines light on who God is. We're, we're in the dark about God, uh, about who he is, until the Spirit shines light on him. And none of us um, can know God apart from the Spirit's work of revealing God, either through Scripture or the Spirit dwelling in us. And Paul says the Spirit enables our hearts to see God for who he truly is. And in the Bible, the, the heart is, is the core of a person's being. It drives and controls everything they do. Proverbs 4.23 says it this way, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so you can picture the heart um, like the driver's seat in a car. Whoever is in the driver's seat is going to control where that car goes, what it does, how it's going to get there. And the heart is the driver's seat of a person's life. And driver's seats don't remain empty. Someone or something is going to sit in that driver's seat. The heart is the driver's seat, and someone or something is going to sit in the driver's seat of your life. And the thing that sits there is whatever you value most in your life. That's what's going to be in the driver's seat. So the heart's the driver's seat, and something's going to sit there. And the thing that sits there is what you value most. It's what you see as most important, as highest priority, and as your greatest treasure. Because whatever you value the most, that's the thing you're going to trust the most. And who do you let in the driver's seat? Well, it's someone you trust. And so it's like the thing you value the most is going to sit in the driver's seat of your life. And it's going to be steering your life in the direction that it wants to go. It's going to control where you're going, how you get there, and what you do. And Paul wants to, God to be in the driver's seat of the Ephesians' lives and in our lives. And for that to happen, they need to see God as their greatest treasure, make him their highest priority, and see him as the most important person 
um, in the whole world. I need to value him above all other, all other things. But in order to value him above all other things, they need to know how valuable he is. Because you know, it's kind of like getting, you appraise things, and then you find out how valuable they are. And it's like Paul's kind of doing this appraisal. Like, look how, uh, I want your eyes to be open to how valuable God is so that he's sitting in the driver's seat of your life. So he's the one controlling um, your heart. And if we truly know God, we would know how awesome he, he is. and He'd be um, worth everything to us, and we would trust him with our lives. And so Paul asked the Father, activate the Spirit's light-shining work in these believers in Ephesus. When I got up super early to go turkey hunting and sat in the dark, the, the beauty was all around me. It was always there. I just wasn't aware of it because I couldn't see it. And because I wasn't aware of it, I couldn't appreciate it. The trees, the grass, the hills, the valley, the spring flowers, they were all there, but it was dark, so I couldn't see him. And the beauty about God and who he is, it's always there. God is never more or less glorious or never more or less worthy of praise. But the, the problem, the Bible says, is that we suppress the truth about God. We're sitting in the dark. Our minds are darkened. And we need light to be shed on who God is. We need the sun to rise in our hearts so we can be awakened to the truth about who God is and see him for all his glory and worth. And the Spirit is given to us, and it's sort of like, it's like I think if the Spirit instantly showed us like every, everything that's true about God, our minds would just kind of melt and, <laughs> and explode. And so it's almost, you know, when we become a Christian, it's like the light starts, the, it's like the sun starts to come up and the light starts to shine um, to show us, like, wow, that's what God is like. I want to trust in that God. And as, as time goes on, as we grow more and more as Christians, as we read the Bible more and as we pray more and we learn more about who God is, it's like the sun is rising and we're being able to see God more clearly and more fully. And it's as, as we grow as Christians, the sun's rising in our hearts. The, the spirit is like the sun getting higher in the sky. The big question this passage answers is, how can you know God better? And the start of our answer is this. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light. How can you know God better? If you ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light. And the question is, on what? What should the Spirit shine his light on? What should we ask the Spirit to shine light on? And that's where Paul is going to go next. Um, and I think, I forgot to say at the beginning, I was going to tell you all you should grab a pen if you don't have one. Uh, but I want you to grab a bulletin um, and grab a pen. Um, and if you don't have one, you can grab one if you want. Or you can just try to remember this. But take a moment and write these three words in your bulletin. Hope, love, power. Hope, love, power. Hope, love, and power. Now circle the one that you need the most right now? Are you feeling hopeless? Are you feeling not loved, not accepted? Are you feeling, man, I just don't have enough strength to go on? Hope, love, and power. Circle the one that you need the most right now. Hope, love, and power is where Paul is going to focus his prayer. And so if you want to know God better, um, these are the three truths that will tell you what God is like as a father. So let's start with hope in verse 18. So we'll just back up to verse 17, reveal the whole, review the whole prayer that Paul has said. He says this, verse seven, starting in verse 17. He's praying um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know, okay, here's the first thing, what is the hope to which he has called you? So he's praying, God, would you shine light? Father, would you use the Spirit to shine light on this thing, the hope to which you have called these believers? And often, you know, we use the word hope to express wishes. I hope it goes well. I hope you have a good day. I hope I did well on my test. I hope you had a good vacation. But the hope that God gives us is more than a wish. It's about a future that he's promised and that will certainly happen. It isn't a future that we wish will be true. It's a future that will be true because God always keeps his promises. The future God promises to those who trust in Jesus, um, we can use two phrases to describe it. It's with God and it's without sin. That's the future that God has called us to. It's with God and it's without sin. God says that he's making all things new. He's making us new. He's making all of creation new. And imagine a car that, that came out of the factory new, working order, bright, shiny paint, awesome engine, everything's just going well. But if it got ignored, never got taken to the mechanic, never got taken care of, never got washed, never got oil changes for just years and years and just got abused and neglected, uh, eventually this paint's just going to start chipping, the engine's going to be spitting and sputtering, there's going to be rust all over the place, the interior's going to be all ripped up, and then but then somebody could take that into their shop and they could work on it. If they knew how to fix it, they could work on it and they could restore it. And you know, garage door goes up, car comes out. It's bright and new, just as glorious as it was when it was first came out of the factory. And this is how the Bible pictures us in creation. God created us in full working order, bright, shiny. He said it's all good, um, but sin has corroded and corrupted us and the whole universe as well. It's not just us. God... Um, tells us that the whole, all creation has been subjected to, to bondage under our sin from leaving, separating us from God. And um, everything's broken down because that's the effect of when we separate ourselves um, from God. But now he says, I'm restoring it all. Um, and I'm, he started with us. We're kind of like the first um, picture of what it looks like to be restored, to have creation restored. And, and one day, um, everything's going to be fully restored and made new. And you could state it this way, because of Jesus, the hope God has called us to is a future free from the presence of sin. Sin will be no more. Sin will not be with us. It won't be present in us. It won't be present in this world anymore. It's going to be a future free from the presence of sin. The world will be without sin. At the same time, we will be with God, without sin and with God. When God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, he walked with them and he talked with them face to face. And one day we are going to be able to do that. We're going to be with God because we'll be free from the presence of sin. We'll know God fully and we won't have anything hindering us in, to know him. And Jesus, um, he's doing that now. Jesus um, is God, um, the son of God who took on flesh and he already has a new body untainted by the effects of sin and he's in the presence of God as a human. He took on flesh and he's a human. Jesus didn't say like, okay, we're done with that body, throw it in the trash heap, now I'm just going to go back to not having a body. But Jesus was taken up into heaven bodily and he's going to return bodily. So Jesus is the, um, the first um, human with a body who's in God's direct presence. And you can think about it, Jesus' present existence is our future existence. Everything that's true of Jesus now is going to be true of us, except for the addition that all creation will also be made new. You're not, you're not going to float off in the, you just, it's not like if you go far enough into space, all of a sudden you'll find heaven and we're just going to be floating around up there. The whole goal, God says in the Bible, is that 
he made this world and it's good. He's restoring it to his goodness. And so we're going to be on this earth. It's just not going to have all the effects of sin um, on it anymore. And the big question this passage answers is, how can you know God better? The first answer is this. We said our starter is, ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light. Well, on what? Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the hope he gives to you. The hope he gives to you. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the hope he gives to you. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the hope he gives to you. God calls us to a future with him and without sin. That's our certain hope. And if you know God better, you need to, if you want to know God better, you need to see him as a father who's called you to a guaranteed hope when you had none. We had no hope without God, but God has given us a sure hope we can bank on. So let's turn to our second truth that Paul wants us to know about God. He continues in verse 18. So he asked the Father to shine the Spirit's light on what? He says uh, at the end of verse 18, he says, on what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? <clears throat> Parents can leave their kids an inheritance after they die. Perhaps it's a house or money or some land or a car. Um, and the Bible talks about inheritance in two ways. First, it talks about God gives his children an inheritance. And our inheritance is exactly what we just talked about. It's the hope that God has called us to. It's the hope of inheriting a world without sin where we live with God in his presence. A world without sin and with God. And it's the hope of a whole new creation. That's the inheritance that we as God's children, if you trust in Christ, have to look forward to. But second, the Bible talks about God receiving and inheritance as well. When, when God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, he called them his treasured possession and his inheritance. An inheritance is something of great value that you set aside for someone else um, to receive. And Paul calls us in this verse, he says, the glorious inheritance of uh, the saints. And saints, you know, that's not uh, like what the Catholic Church believes where some people are kind of like super Christians, but it's, saints just means like a holy person or holy people. It's God's holy people. When God calls people to himself, we're all made holy. We're his holy people. We're set apart. And that's what holy means. It means set apart. And God, when he purchased us out of slavery to sin, he now made us holy and set us apart for adoption into his family. And so now when God looks at us, he sees us as his treasured possession of great value. And he looks forward to finally receiving us into his presence how we're always supposed to be and so he's looking forward to receiving us as his inheritance once we did not belong to god's family we were alienated and estranged from him but when god adopts us into his family he loves us with a love deeper than we will ever know he rejoices over you he cherishes you he treasures you he calls you his treasured possession he considers himself to be rich um, because he has you as his glorious inheritance after we've trusted in Jesus, we look forward to a future with God, and God looks forward to a future with us. And the big question this passage answered is, how can you know God better? And the second answer is this. You ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the love he has for you. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the love he has for you. <coughs> That's how we know God better, knowing the love he has for us. And if the hope that God gives us is to one day be free from the presence of sin, the love God has for us is about being free from the penalty of sin. 
Because the essence of sin is a desire to replace God as the king of our lives. We want to be on the throne instead of him. We want independence and we refuse to submit to him. We'd rather reign over our own little kingdom rather than live in his kingdom. But if we separate ourselves from God, we separate ourselves from the giver of life. You know, if you're, you know, sometimes I'm vacuuming after we get done here and I get too far away and the, the vacuum pulls out of the, the wall and it's, then it stops. And that's what it's like for us. We try to separate ourselves from God and poof, we get, we're pulled out of the power source, the giver of life. And that's brought death to us in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, mentally. And Jesus took on the penalty for that separation, for our sin. He died in our place to bring us back to God. And we can be free of sin's penalty because Jesus paid. He paid the penalty. And so now, instead of being separated from God, we can be embraced with his love as sons and daughters. And Jesus was totally sinless. He never did anything that would separate him from God. And imagine a relationship. It may be even almost impossible for us to imagine, but imagine a relationship where neither person ever did anything that hurt the other person. They never did anything that caused separation or for walls to, to go up between them. Like, can you imagine? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can imagine a relationship, but just imagine never having any strife, never having any enmity um, between you and another person. And that's the relationship Jesus, God the Son, has with God the Father. There's been nothing that's ever separated them um, that Jesus did, except for the moment when he took our sins on him to voluntarily to separate himself from God so that he could pay for us to be in that relationship with him. But because he did that, because of Jesus, we now enjoy the same relationship with God that Jesus has with him. All the barriers between us and God are tore down. And God treats us the same way that he treats Jesus. We get the same treatment. And Jesus is God's beloved son who never sinned. And now because we are forgiven, we're treated as God's beloved sons and daughters who are free of sin's penalty. God proved his love for you when Jesus died for you. He laid down his life for you. He took this penalty for sin in your place. And if you want to know God better. You need to see him as a father who loves you and cherishes you and is crazy about you. I mean, this passage, just think about that. He looks at us as he, the riches of his glorious inheritance. He's like, someday I'm going to get to pull in all you know, this, this awesome treasured possession of mine. They're going to get to be in my presence forever with me. And that's what God looks forward to. So let's turn to our third truth now. Paul continues his prayer in verse 19. And the request, this request gets the lengthiest description. Um, so let's back up to verse 18. Um, he asks the Father to shine the Spirit's light on three truths. Verse 18 says the first one. The first one is, uh, what is the hope to which he's called you? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? <clears throat> And this last truth is all about power. In, in this verse and following, Paul's just going to pile on word after word to convey power, how God is working powerfully in a believer's life. When you trust in Jesus, he's like, this is what is happening in you. There's God is working crazy things in your life. It's like he went to the thesaurus and he just looked up all these synonyms for power. Like, how can I you know, really emphasize this and, and really get the point across? We may ask, well, what level of power does God work in a believer's life? 
Paul says it's according to the working of his great might. That's like the standard. Here's the great might. Um, and then verse 20, he's going to use Jesus as the supreme illustration of what, how great God's might is um, in how he's working the life of someone who believes. So he says in verse 20 um, that this great might is the same might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated them at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, notice how many times he says all, and notice how many times he's like, you know, if, okay, he exalted him above the powers. And it's like, okay, just in case you think, oh, that exempts these other groups. He's like, no, the authorities, he just keeps going. He's like, he's, he's exalted him above everything. He's like, I just really want you to understand this power God's working for you. And we can think about it as a, a great reversal. God worked a great reversal in Jesus' life. Jesus was betrayed, as we've seen in this Easter series. He was betrayed, arrested, denied mocked, condemned, crucified, and then died. He had no heartbeat, no pulse. His body went limp and then stiff. He was a cold, lifeless corpse. And so then he was put where all corpses need to go. He was buried in a tomb. He went to the grave. But then the reversal is, but then God raised him from the dead. He brought him from death to life. Jesus breathed again, and not only that, he now had a resurrection body that couldn't be corrupted by sin anymore. But he's not only raised to life, okay, cool, Jesus is alive, but then it says he seated them at the Father's right hand. Jesus has been enthroned to the highest position of honor, privilege, and authority. No one is above him, not now, not ever. But not only was he raised and then seated at the Father's right hand, but now all things have been put under his feet. It's not like he's just sitting there and he's like, oh man, I've got to take care of all these other competing rulers and people that are of equal power with me. No, everything has been subjected to him. It's not only that he's sitting at God's right hand, but everything has been subjected to him. And then not only that, he's been given his head over all things to the church. He's the church's Lord and Savior. He's the king taking care of God's treasured possession. The church is God's treasured possession. And Jesus is put, put in charge of that. He's the one who purchased and redeemed us and saved us. And Paul's saying the most stunning illustration, the most stunning example of God's power is bringing Jesus from death to life to Lord all over all things. He was like at the lowest point you could ever go, and now he's at the highest point um, that you could ever get to. And so talk about a turnaround. This is the great reversal of history from condemned and dead to alive and reigning. But what Paul says here, he says the very same power that God worked in Jesus to create that great reversal is now the same power that he's working in your life to create a great reversal. Because we go from condemned and dead to now alive and reigning with Jesus. That's what Paul's going to say in the next passage. He's saying, now you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You're part of his kingdom. You're actually... Um, you've got the king of all kings who's your ruler, and so now you're also above all things. God is doing this great reversal in our lives as well. And Paul says, lastly, he says, we're Christ's body, and he is our head. In the ancient world, the head was viewed um, as, in two ways. There was like the, the, command, the thing that commanded the body, it ruled the body, like you know, told the body what to do, but it was also the source of life. It's like you can cut someone's hand off, they could live, cut someone's head off, they're not going to live very long. So it's like, that was like a source of life. That's kind of how they saw that. And so 
Um, in the same way, Jesus is ruling over his body, the church. He tells us what to do. He directs us. But he also fills the body with life, the same life and the same power that he has. And as he fills us, he is filling the world with his kingdom presence. As people come to trust in Jesus and as he is growing his church, Jesus is being um, seen more and more throughout the world um, as we spread the news about him. And the big question this passage answers is, how can you know God better? The third answer is this. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the power he works in you. The power he works in you. Ask the Father to shine the Spirit's light on the power he works in you. Each one of these is started with the same request. God, would you shine the Spirit's light? And in this last one, shine the light on the power he works in you. And if the hope God gives us is about being freed from the presence of sin, and God's love for us is about being free from the penalty of sin, God's power working in us is about being free from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. If you trust in Jesus, the shackles that once held you in bondage are gone. They're broken. They're shattered. We're now able to say no to sin and yes to God. And God is now in the driver's seat and sin isn't. The three things, hope, love, and power. It's important to note that Paul doesn't pray that God would give them hope, love, and power. He's praying that they'd be aware of the hope, love, and power that God has already given to them. When I was turkey hunting those early morning hours, the beauty was always there. It didn't have to be created. It was already there. Once the light shone, it started shining, the sun started coming up, I could see it and appreciate it. And similarly, the beauty of God and how valuable it is is always there. Even if we're, we could be sitting in a vault, you know, just an enormous vault. You know, remember, imagine all of Woodstock was just this big vault full of treasures and wonders, but the lights were turned off. We'd just be sitting here being like, we're in the dark and there's nothing here, nothing too great here. Um, but the Holy Spirit is the one who starts shining the light so we can start seeing how rich we are. It's like God's plopped us in this vault and he's saying, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to slowly, it's like having a dimmer switch, you know, like it doesn't come out automatically, but it's like slowly the dimmer switch is going up and he's saying, like, you know, God, Paul's saying, God, would you please put the dimmer switch up in these people's lives so they can see how rich they are, how much treasure you've put in their bank account in this vault. And all this truth can, we can summarize, that we've been saying we could summarize like this. Know that God is the gospel. There's a pastor named John Piper who wrote a book called that. God is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we get God. God gives himself to us. It isn't primarily about getting out of hell or, or going to heaven when you die. Those are part of the gospel because Hell is eternal separation from God. Heaven um, is eternity with God. Um, no, the good news is that God is amazingly gracious, abundantly loving, overwhelmingly merciful, and wonderfully patient. The good news is that God gives us himself as the most extravagant gift we'll ever receive, and that we get to know him and enjoy him. The more you know God, the more you'll become acquainted with hope. The more you know God, the more you'll become acquainted with love. And the more you know God, the more you'll become acquainted with power to overcome sin. And so do you have this God that we've been talking about today in the driver's seat of your life? Or do you have some other version of God in the driver's seat? A pastor and writer named A.W. Tozer once famously said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us 
comes into our minds when we think about God as the most important <coughs> thing about us. Well, why? Because what you think about God will determine how you live, and our view of God is very easily distorted. Because we have a tendency to think God is a big cosmic party pooper. He's the lawgiver in the sky. He's the rule enforcer who's always watching. He's the ultimate fun sucker. He comes into a room and all the fun's just gone. Everyone just kind of tenses up. Like, oh gosh, we got to be in our best behavior now. We better not make him mad. We better you know, do everything right. And he doesn't want us to be happy here. And he always has a skull on his face. And he's waiting for us to get our act together. And if that's your view of God, and that's the God you're trying to let have the driver's seat, you probably feel this heavy burden on your back and you want to kick him out of the driver's seat pretty often because that God just isn't very worthy of our worship. He's not worth worshiping. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, our culture wants God to be this big, mushy ball of love that never tells us no, sweeps all our misbehavior under the rug, and lets us do whatever we want. And this God actually prefers for us to, he actually prefers to be in the passenger seat and let you drive because, you know, it's just whatever makes you happy. Um, I just want you to be happy, so just do whatever you want. You can be in the driver's seat. I'm just going to kind of be here to affirm, you know, what you're doing. It's just all, everything you do is good as long as you're doing what makes you happy. And that God might as well not even exist because what's the purpose of him? <laughs> it's like just hanging out and saying like, yeah, you know, just do whatever you want. But the good news is that neither of these is what God is like. God is better than both of these. Our God knows our deepest need is a close, personal relationship with him where he guides us through life. He takes care of us. He shows us the way. And he picks us up when we fall and he forgives us and he's patient with us and slow to anger. The problem is that there's so many voices in the world telling us what God is like. And that's why we need to pray and we need others to pray for us. And Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know God better and, and, that, they would, and that tells us that our prayers for other people can make a difference in their life. That your prayers for somebody else can you know, raise the dimmer switch, can let the sun rise up higher in the sky so that they see God more fully and more clearly. You can make a difference so somebody can know God and enjoy Him more. And this also tells us that knowing God better happens with others. Paul is praying for them. Um, so that they can know God better. And that's why, as Nick highlighted, we do gospel, what we call gospel fluency groups, which are groups of two to three men or women, and they're focused on our knowledge and our love of God, knowing God more and, and enjoying Him more. And the best way to know God better is to, if the do, is to do with others. And the, one, two of our community practices, one, believing the gospel and relying on the Spirit. And this passage is showing us that God is the gospel. Here's this good news that we're told about in Scripture. And then at the same time, we need to rely on the Spirit who already gave us this uh, scripture. But then also at the same time, like, oh, would he shine light on these truths about God? Because I just cannot see them. I just feel like I'm in the dark and I need him to shine light on those truths for me. And so if you're not in uh, a gospel fluency group, consider making that a part of your life. And if you're in one, um, commit to praying for the other people in your group when you're not meeting. We pray during those groups. We say, you you know, God, would you... Use the Spirit to help us understand you. Would you help us to believe this? Would you help us to obey this? Uh, but then also pray for your group outside of it. You know, would, would you please let um, Larry know and love you more because he can see you more clearly in his life and these truths about you. Praying for other people is one of the best uses of your time. It's one of the best things you can do to help other people grow.
And that said, with that said, we're going to do something different than we normally do, but um, I'm excited to do it because we, we're a family, we're a church family, and so when we get together, um, we should be able to take care of one another. And the, uh, the best application of this passage, Paul is praying for other people, and the best way we can plot, apply it is to now um, pray for one another. And so, you know, turn to the, or if you're not with somebody, just turn around to someone closest to you. Um, and earlier you wrote down hope, love, and power, and then you circled the one that you needed the most right now. And so just tell the person next to you, this is the one I wrote down and circled. And then they're just going to pray for you um, for 30 seconds uh, above, for that for you. And so real quickly, you know, find the person that you need to be by. And I notice you guys are three, so um, that'll work out. For, oh, you guys are three too. Oh, gosh. But that'll work. So just, just, tell the, just tell the person, which one did you write down? Hope, love, or power? And then pray for it. And I'll give you 30 seconds, then I'll tell you to switch. <laughs> 